The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, look, I'm really excited because we have got now this uh, in this 30 minute programme, the third of our mayoral candidates. So Sean Berry is coming into the radio studio from the Green Party to talk to us about uh, her vision, really, uh, for London. Of course, the elections uh, in early May she will be challenging Sadiq Khan. So I'm really curious to see what she has to say. But then we've also got... Uh, um, a really interesting conversation coming up because we've had a lot of UK data out this week. Positive for retail sales, home prices, the latest PMI figures. And I want to understand what that means for voters and uh, for the government. Yeah, there's so much numbers, isn't there? And translating that into actual impact is what we really have to do on the show today. So the UK economy outperforming the Eurozone for the second month, according to the latest data. Factories uh, posting a rise in output for 10 months. You've got the services sector slowing a little bit, but that's being cancelled out by an unexpected upturn in manufacturing. So all of these playing off against each other. And that all points to growing evidence of a so-called Boris bounce oh, I hate the in the phrase, wake of the December's election. You're going to hear it a lot in the next half an hour. Let's dig right into this. We've got Dan Hansen with us. He's a UK economist, a senior UK economist from Bloomberg Economics. And we've also got Adam Blenford, who's the editor of the Brexit Bulletin newsletter. Dan, let's get this out in the open. Is this a Boris bounce? <laughs> I think, look, you've you've hit the nail on the head that the, the news flow, particularly over the past week, has been really, really positive. Um, and... We're talking about a bounce in economic activity, and it's it's a modest bounce. I think we need to put it into context. The economy stagnated at the end of last year. That that data came out last week, and moving into this year, we're talking about quarterly growth of maybe point two, maybe point three. Now you compare that to history; that's really weak for the UK economy. But when you put it in the context of what happened at least over the past year, it's actually okay. And when you put it in the context of this idea that the economy can't grow as fast anymore because of all these productivity problems, part of which is associated with Brexit, it's actually quite a good good number and it's a positive story. Um, mm. You know, it could very easily have gone the other way over the past few months. Um, and it, it, it's a positive story, we think. Yeah, as ever, I think it's so important with these numbers to really understand the context, especially when, you know, politicians are going to spin this hard, mm. aren't they? The other question then for you, Dan, is looking forwards, really, about how long this can actually last. I mean, we're saying, is it a bounce? Well, uh, a, a bounce. And then what, I guess, is my question? Yeah, so you've Got a, you've got a few competing influences on the economy um, going forward. You've got obviously we've got the coronavirus, 
We know that's there, and that could weigh on activity, certainly in the first quarter, but it depends how long it lasts for and how, how that goes. We, of course, have got the budget coming up, and this year it's likely that the government will lift demand by spending a lot more. Um, and the other story, which we've, we haven't really touched on, is that inflation's pretty weak mm. at the moment in the UK, and it's likely to remain weak over the course of this year. So we think that's likely to buoy real income growth, buoy consumers. Of course, the final thing in the background is businesses, Brexit, and uncertainty. And it's very unlikely that business investment, which has been the thing that has really suffered over the past three years, makes any form of comeback over, over the next 12 months, mainly because this this new deadline on the 31st of December. Adam, I've got to ask you about the budget. It's the first big chance, really, for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to show off and to put some substance behind all of the claims they've been making. We saw Sajid Javid sent out the door of his own volition, as we're led to believe. Rishi Sunak come in. Can we expect anything different now because of that? Well, we were already um, primed to expect a kind of loosening of the purse strings in the budget. Um, there was discussion, uh, though Sajid Javid was uh, expected still to kind of stick to his fiscal rules. Um, and so the, the, the eyes are now on uh, Rishi Sunak to see whether he delivers a little bit more, which is the, the suggestion that, that the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, wants... Um, uh, increased levels of spending, increased levels of investment, um, particularly in those northern uh, areas of England, northern parts of the UK, where uh, the Conservatives won votes over in the election back in December. Um, you know, and it's interesting to to pick up on, on what Dan said. He talked about a modest bounce. He talked about... Um, historically being quite low. Well, uh, the Conservative government has grand ambitions. Um, they, they want to do, they want to invest at a high level. They want to build HS2. They want to remake the economy after Brexit. We haven't um, sort of mentioned that that's looming, uh, the, 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 the post-Brexit settlement. Um, the really fascinating thing will be to see whether they can do that with a modest bounce um, whether they can do it with a modest bounce. Well, the obvious response is that this is all really unconservative. It's all of this spending that you typically see from Labour. How is this going to play out? Are we just going to see spend, spend, spend through the next four and a bit years? Well, they're already priming to try and win the next election. Um, and, you know, this government seems to be very message driven. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, discussion around uh, how the government is portrayed in the media. Um, they're trying tightly to control the message, and, and because of the size of the majority that they've got, and, uh, they've got that opportunity to stay in government for you know a couple of terms at least before the um, Labour opposition. You know they'll have a really hard time overturning that in in four or five years' time. Um, so, you know they 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 but. If the Labour Party can turn it around a bit, the Tories are already thinking with this plan about how to try and keep those voters on side the next cycle around. So we may be seeing a kind of, I hesitate to say populist, but at least trying to sort of um, vote pleasing sort of mm. policies and ambitions for, for some time. OK, I want to grab a bucket of cold water, though, uh, from Dan Hansen, because you did spend, uh, what, seven, eight years at the Treasury in the UK. So you understand how all of this works in terms of uh, Rishi Sunak. Is he really going to chuck out the uh, uh, view of trying to keep a balanced budget over the period of sort of three years? Is all of this kind of opening of the spending taps really going to go ahead? And also, is it going to happen instantly in March, or do we have to wait for the autumn budget? Oh, uh, that's a lot of questions in one. So, <laughs> Sorry. so the, the first thing to say is that fiscal rules in the UK are, if one thing is true of them, it's they're designed to be scrapped. Um, <laughs> okay. So we've had loads of fiscal rules over the past decade. Yes. Um, 
So I don't preclude it in the slight. I don't think it's unlikely. Sorry, I think it's quite likely that he goes ahead and scraps them. I don't think it's Shed his own path. it's probably it's probably not our central case, but there is a high probability um, that he does he does scrap them and gives himself the space to to do what he wants to do. I mean, picking up on uh, something that said that said there and, uh, and Adam picked up on as well is that the government's likely to do a lot in the upcoming budget. They always keep their powder dry for the final budget of any um, uh, five-year period sort of or when the, when yeah. the election's coming. Um, so you can always, you always know something more is coming at the end of any election cycle. Um, but the truth be told is that my, my experience of working in the Treasury is that um, the chan- each Chancellor has their own, their, wants to tread their own path and Sunak is is likely to do that. Um, it's it's possible he sticks to Javid's rules now and then changes them later, but all the risks are tilted in one direction. They're tilted towards a bigger giveaway than uh, Javid was talking about. It's, it's all in that direction. And what about unemployment, Dan? Because we see it again this week at a four-decade low, but at the same time, we've seen these announcements around immigration that are forecast to slash the number of unskilled migrants coming to Britain. How does that play out? Well, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because the UK has relied so much on inward migration over the past, well, since you look at the, all the figures that have been put out there since 2004 when uh, things really opened up. Um, the fact is the UK labour market across all regions, in fact, and it's not just in London and the South East, in all regions looks pretty tight. And the idea of putting pushing all this money into these labour markets without the flow of migrants who tend to be quite mobile and move around to meet the demands of the extra spending. Um, I've talked about inflation being weak, but that that is a mix for mm. creating bottlenecks, supply bottlenecks in the economy. And it's a mix for inflation when you pump all this money in and the economy is already close to what economists say full capacity or full employment. So the employment story has been fantastic in the UK and it's been um, a big sort of miracle. But the migration story will play into that really significantly over the coming coming years, and the, it will be the inter- interesting to see the interaction with how it impacts, particularly wage growth, which we know has been it's been picking up a bit, but it's been very weak over the past decade. Yeah, uh, and and that's sort of kind of the intellectual economic sort of perspective. But but Adam, I'm curious about the IPPR because there's this bit of research that was really fascinating um, from this think tank um, that showed that basically jobs are being created in the south versus the north in a far far higher proportion. I mean, obviously, you know, the bulk of the economic growth is down south, but you know, politically, that's really tricky, isn't it? I mean, Dan will know the the history of this, but but. That sort of get cuts to the heart of of what the conservatives are, are talking about. You know, this idea of levelling up. Um, that's the kind of thing they have to address, along with you know other long-standing issues, UK productivity, various things like that. Um, it's it's this 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 sort of uh, imbalance that um, London. Um, if you took London and the southeast of England, it's a roaring economy. It's uh, you know a large economy in European terms. If you take the UK without the London and the Southeast in it, it's 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 really I think a laggard. Um, so um, you know give, that's 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 the underpinning of the HS2 idea that to improve connectivity and business opportunities. Um, that's uh, the the mission that they're attempting to um, to, to get through at, in, into the, the northern regions. I mean, one of the, the the big imponderables though does seem that 
um, not to try and always steer this thing back to Brexit. But um, you talked about the immigration system, which won't be in place until next year, and that will change the dynamic in some way. But then also, whatever happens uh, with the Brexit negotiations, the post-Brexit negotiations this year for a free trade deal or for a very, you know, a, a not a free trade deal, that will really shape the economy in ways that I, I guess, Dan, not many people have been able to model yet. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. And we've got to talk about the story sweeping the country, really. It's warnings of further flooding and travel disruption. They remain in place along the Welsh border, Scotland and the north of England. Several inches of rain also expected in Yorkshire. But there's mounting criticism that the Prime Minister hasn't visited any of the flood hit areas. While the Floods Minister, Rebecca Powell, says he doesn't need to. The point is that we do have what's called cabinet government. So we're given our roles and our positions. So I'm the flooding minister. We've been deployed out and around the country and we then all feed back to the centre. So Boris is completely and utterly in touch. So it, Interesting that, one, isn't it? For a man who claims to be so in touch with the North and the Midlands, not to be leaving London, not great optics. Uh, no, exactly. But of course, the defence from the Prime Minister is that he doesn't need to go because, of course, he's being briefed regularly uh, on the update. So take that as you will. Uh, then this is also of uh, great interest. Uh, so burning... Uh, coal fires here in the UK. It's the big government announcement this morning. Uh, so a plan to ban domestic coal and also certain other types of wood from being sold as part of its plan, basically to tackle air pollution. That's set to take effect next year. The Environment Secretary saying that the move was necessary as uh, wood burning stoves and open fires were now considered, quote, the most harmful pollutant affecting people uh, in uh, this country. Actually, we interviewed the Centre for Cities mm. when they brought out the report about air pollution in London and the rest of the country. And I was flabbergasted. So to was find, I. Yeah, that the, something that is kind of considered a, a beauty feature, you know, home beautiful, your wood-burning coal fire is actually creating so many issues in terms of 50% pollution. 50% of PM2.5 emissions in cities Horrible. come from domestic sources. I had to dig out that stat because I thought it was all about cars, but turns out there are other yeah. issues as well. Here's a story I just pulled out in the last five minutes because it flashed across uh, my computer. I thought it was great. Bold red and orange labels highlighting misinformation shared by politicians and other public figures is one way that Twitter is apparently considering as a way to tackle fake news. So we've got this mock-up that NBC News has has come up with uh, or come across and it shows how verified fact-checkers and journalists can then highlight incorrect tweets directly below the original post. I don't know if this means people verified on Twitter because I really don't want to let blue-tick Twitter go ahead and do all of this. Uh, But there also appears to be some way for people to add feedback as a participate button so we can all get involved and tell each other that we're wrong. Yeah, sorry. I did think the journalists were meant to be the the yellow or or orange stickers (laughs) for that. But hey, it's the job of everyone. Uh, Right. So those are some of our top stories uh, this morning. Let's get into our substantive conversation, though, with Sean Berry, the Green Party candidate for Mayor of London and also the Green Party's co-leader. A very warm welcome to the studio. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So look, you have stood a couple of times now before for London Mayor 2008 2016 you managed third and fourth place 
What is different this time? Well, I managed third place last time, as you said. Last time in the election, um, as you know, you have two votes for Mayor of London. I got the most second preference votes of any candidate. So I'm the clear second favourite. Mm. We just need to swap around some of those votes this time. Get me into the top two. And then if I'm still the second favourite, I should be able to beat Sadiq Khan. But that's, even that's more plan. crowded field this time, though, Sean. How are you standing out? Because Sadiq has been very vocal on things like air pollution that I imagine you might be talking about as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a good reason Sadiq Khan's painting himself as green. <laughs> uh, it's because of the very strong challenge that Green Assembly members have made um, over the past 20 years. We've been there since the start of the London Assembly but in the last four years we've really worked very hard and we've had the big strong public campaigns uh, from people on the streets from young people particularly the school strikes which have made it inevitable that people in the political eye are going to want to seem green. We're the Green Party. We're the ones to hold everybody to account on those issues. And we've done that with the mayor. We were putting pressure up on him up until just a few weeks ago to properly put a target in place for 2030 for London to be carbon neutral. He was resisting that. My colleague Caroline Russell was arguing with him in the London Assembly. Now he's done it because there's an election coming up and this is great. This is the people power, the voter power that we need. Uh, okay. If he's threatened by green votes, then he's going to be greener. And if we can get a real green mayor, then we can just you know cut out the middleman and go straight to the right policy straight away. OK, but how can you say that the Green Party's been holding the administration and, and Sadiq Khan to account when two million people are living with this illegal air pollution in London. We know that it's killing and hurting citizens here and it's a disastrous problem. And we've been saying so um, right from the start of his planning for, for the ultra low emission zone, which is the clean air zone. We've been saying why oh why take it only up to the north and south circular roads? Why isn't it for the whole of London? And why aren't you developing a smarter scheme that won't just charge someone a lot of money to come in for the whole day drive around as much as you like? That bears no relation to the actual emissions. We want a smarter scheme that's about distance travelled, the emissions level mm -mm. of the car um, and all of those things. And he's done nothing of that. So I say we've been holding him to account. On some things we've pushed him very hard and got success. Um, on other things such as youth services, on housing policies for people on estates facing demolition, we've made significant U-turns from the current mayor. But on this one he hasn't budged and it's incredibly frustrating because there are people all throughout outer London where there are hot spots of incredibly bad air pollution that are not going to be helped by his current policy. But hang on a second, a it fudge. is very easy to ban the car. The RAC saying that across the UK more than a third of drivers are now more dependent the on their vehicles. The that we should ban cars? No, they're saying that. <laughs> that would, I'm not even saying that. No, but they are saying that more than a third of drivers are now more dependent on their car now than they were a year ago. So that's a new survey. That yes. it basically says, easy to strike out with a pen your ability to drive around, but you've got no decent alternatives. Well, that's exactly right, isn't it? I mean, car dependency is something I've worked on for a number of years. I was, before I was a London Assembly member, a transport campaigner. And car dependency is the exact right phrase to be used. Thank you, RIC, because it is about that. You you leave people with no choice but to be dependent on a car. And then when you've got people who are getting older, we've got an ageing population, eventually you do lose your licence. This is a real problem for inclusion, for loneliness. So it's bus services that have been cut around the country. And surprisingly, under the current mayor, we've seen bus cuts in London too. Um, with years and years, we've seen improvements in the bus service and now it's going backwards. That needs to be corrected. And for that, we need to invest more. And for that, we need to shift the balance of payments from people on public transport, which who currently contribute almost all of the transport budget, mm. a little bit more onto people who drive and then use that money 
to provide the alternatives. You get into a virtuous circle. That so way. what do you then do about the high streets across London? Because the argument goes that if you ban cars, fewer people come into the, the local correct, high streets. No one is saying ban cars. No, sorry, 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 not ban cars, but sorry, reduce, <laughs> reduce. the amount of car use yes, if you want right, to extend you reduce, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, so if you want to reduce car use. What do you do then to protect those high streets that are already many of them struggling? Yes, absolutely. Um, High streets have really suffered in recent years from lots of different factors, including competition from online retailers Mm. who are contributing to the increase Mm. in traffic. So again, we're we're not in a virtuous circle there. We do need to be making sure people have good high streets so that they have places they can walk and cycle to where they can find more of the things they need. But then you also do need some short-term parking spaces. One thing I'm going to be talking about soon is... Um, making smarter choices with travel for travel to reduce the, the miles you drive. And if you think about it, if you can only get free parking in a big supermarket that's miles away and you're going to places like swimming or, or to, to take your children to um, football practice or something like that, you want to be able to stop off briefly at local shops, combine two trips into one and reduce the amount you drive that way. So we need short-term parking for high streets. What we don't need is like all-day free parking, which a lot of councils go for, because all that happens happens then is people park there and stay there all day and all you've got you haven't got a parking space you've just got a car sitting there so you need a a good policy of turning over the cars and having short-term parking spaces for those drop-offs and stop-offs on the way on other journeys okay let's let's pin you down to some actual numbers then uh what price would you set the single fare that you've talked about for um tfl in terms of one fare for any journey that you take on public transport in london so the the fares in outer london what i've said is they need to come down it's not fair that you have to um travel further and spend longer on the tube and pay more all at the same time so i'd be seeking over time to bring down the number of zones so that everyone was paying the same as you pay now for a zone one or two how does that not blow a hole in your budget well it would do if you weren't also bringing in smarter fairer road pricing um which then takes but a little bit more but you want to significantly the... reduce road road use right by yes. cars vehicles so in order to have an effective scheme you inevitably do raise some money and then that means that drivers are paying a bit more of the budget than they currently do at the moment we take 4 billion pounds a year in transport fares and very very little like it's very hard to work out because there isn't even a separate budget line for the money we take in through the congestion charge and the low emission zone type charges um it's 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 very very small uh, we need to shift that balance just a little bit and then we'll have no hole in the budget, right. fair affairs, less traffic, lots of incentives to, to travel in, in ways that are greener and create a better city. OK, so that, that that's transport. What about the city? It's a huge economic powerhouse within your would-be constituency. What do you offer them? I mean, I want to reduce our reliance on financial services um, in London. I think we need to build up a more resilient local economy. We need to do a lot of my policies are helping small businesses to compete, sort out their costs, sort out a working rent, um, improve the high streets, lots of things like that. Um, But we have to accept that we are a financial centre for the world and look at the assets that we have there and use them for good. So I'd love to see people in the city coming up with new ways to fund Green New Deal type um, initiatives. Um, how can we create enough long-term income streams from things like energy saving in homes to help pay now for the capital investment? Because we've got councils and housing associations who are facing bills of billions and billions to make our homes safe, to make them greener, and, and they are going to struggle to pay that back. But there must be partnerships we can make with people in financial services to help us create bonds that will will spread that cost. Would and, you... and there are people in the city who I know have the expertise to do this. Okay, would you defend the City of London when it comes to Brexit? Obviously, this is a key industry, jobs and money and tax revenue. 
Uh, yes, exactly. We've we've got whole companies that we risk losing to other financial centres. Um, the the terms on which the government is currently proposing to negotiate Brexit to cut freedom of movement to re- to pull us out of the single market. I think it will be a disaster for so much. Um, mm practical things that we need to do in London but but particularly for financial services and it's very hard to see how without completely changing the terms on which the Conservatives right. are working we, we can solve that Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.